So over the last few weeks, we have been looking through John's Gospel, and we've been introduced to Jesus of Nazareth throughout chapter 1. And so this week, we've come to chapter 2. Now, one of the interesting things about saying we've come from chapter 1 to chapter 2 is it's a really tangible way of talking about progress, isn't it? I mean, whether you're reading a book or playing a video game, going from chapter 1 to chapter 2 is a really clear way of saying, yeah, we've moved on, we've, we've moved forward, we've made progress. However, life is rarely that simple. Uh, moving from one stage to the next in life doesn't always feel that clear-cut. I mean, some of us may have already felt the feeling of going, wait, 2023? Wait, oh, I've accidentally written 2022, because our minds are still in last year. And going, what, it's already a new year? What's happened? I mean, how did we get here? What? I feel like not that long ago, it was 2021. But on top of that, some of us may be going, huh, a whole year has passed. Really? What have I achieved in the last year? What has happened in my life? Has it just been another year of blah? For some of us, though, it's even worse than that. Because it's not that we haven't made progress. In fact, it might be that we've lost progress. Taken a few steps back, perhaps. Uh, maybe losing a job opportunity. Or, or a friendship. Or, or a death in the family, or a, or a loved one. Maybe sickness befalling you, or your family and friends. All the while, we see the world continuing to, to be plagued by, by famine, floods, fighting, fear. Well, this evening, I want to ask this question. Where is my life going? This evening, God invites you to peer into the past, into this account from John chapter 2, and what it says about Jesus, and discover it, that it actually has some stuff to say about the future as well. The future of Jesus' life as the, as the gospel of John continues, but also the future of the world and the future of your life. So would you come with me to verses 11 to 12? Come with me to 11 to 12, and here we're going to see point one that Jesus reveals. Now in today's passage, we get a remarkable story about Jesus, but I'm starting here at the end of the passage because these verses tell us something about what the story means, its significance. Uh, please read from verse 11 with me. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples there they stayed for a few days. Now, I just want to make two short points from these verses before we go back to verse 1 and run through the story. Firstly, do you notice how these verses bring out the humanity of Jesus? I mean, he's a real person in a real place, here, Cana of Galilee, before going to Capernaum. He had a biological mother and brothers and disciples. He stays in a place, not like a spirit that's floating around. He, he stays and he talks and he sleeps and he eats. Jesus is truly human. Secondly, Jesus' miraculous story that we'll see in verses 1 to 10, John calls a sign. Now, a feature of John's gospel is that Jesus' miraculous acts aren't called miracles. You'll see that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John's gospel, they're called signs rather than miracles. 
because they aren't there just to demonstrate something about Jesus' might, his, his sovereignty over nature. Rather, they're signs, powerful acts, designed to point us to something, more specifically to someone, Jesus and his glory. Uh, remember back a few weeks ago, we're in John chapter 1, verse 14, and John the Gospel writer wrote, in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the eternal word, made, made truly human, dwelt among humanity. The eternal Son of God revealed his glory, full of grace and truth, through his life, through his public ministry, through his teachings, through his death and resurrection, and through his signs. Through signs like what we see in the story. John chapter 2, verse 11 tells us that this sign is the first through which Jesus revealed his glory. The first of seven in John's gospel, in fact, seven being God's number. Here's the point. Jesus reveals. You see, he cared that his disciples would know him, would see his glory, would respond rightly, would not stay in ignorance, but would in fact believe. And, and we saw in chapter 1 that a lot of these disciples have already believed. And so presumably here in chapter 2, they continue to believe. In fact, they, they grow in their belief. And the same is true for us. You see, Jesus cares that we know his glory, full of grace and truth. He doesn't want us to remain ignorant. Rather, he wants to grow our belief. Now, some may claim that if, if God spontaneously appeared in front of them, maybe in a dream or a vision or a writing in the sky, or if God could do a miraculous thing right now, visibly, well, then I'd no longer be a skeptic. Then I'd believe that God is real. But the truth is that God has acted. He has appeared in reality, in history. God has appeared and acted and revealed himself in the person of Jesus that we would know and have faith and know something about who he was and what that means for our lives. Jesus reveals. We can't claim silence on God's part, although we might be able to claim, to claim rather, ignorance on our parts. God is speaking. Are you listening? Will you listen to those who saw him, his glory, and believe? That's what you're invited to do as we as we now hear about this story, what Jesus did, what it reveals about his glory, and continue to answer this question, where is my life going? So come with me to verses 1 to 7. And here we're going to see where history is headed. In verse 1, start of the story, we see, we see the words, on the third day. Now, we could read this as a reference to, to Jesus' later resurrection on the third day. Those of you who are familiar with the Bible or anything about Easter Sunday may know Jesus was raised on the third day. But here's the thing. John, the gospel writer, never makes on the third day an explicit reference in his gospel. In other words, I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that's why it's written on the third day, apart from the fact that it probably just happened on the third day. Rather, I think there's something more interesting going on just in terms of this narrative. You see, 
in the Jewish culture, when you say on the third day, it means two days later, right? So if I, we're here today and I say on the third day, it'd be two days from now. And in John chapter 1, verses 19 to 51, five days elapse. And so here in John chapter 2, verse 1, when it says on the third day, it means two days after the fifth day, which brings us to day seven. I think John is saying that this story, John chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, is happening on the seventh day. Again, seven, God's number. Not that what came before isn't important, but the climax of the story so far, the, the culmination of where the narrative has brought us is to this point, this wedding, in fact. And so we see here that a wedding is taking place at Cana. Jesus and his disciples have been invited, but a problem arises. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, in the Jewish culture of the time, it was the, the bridegroom's responsibility to, to pay for the wedding feast, to make sure that there was enough food and, and drink to last for the festivities, enough to, to satisfy the guests, the families of the, the bridegroom and the bride, the friends of the bridegroom and the bride. And so you can see the problem here. Because what's going to happen when the partygoers realize we've got to finish prematurely? The bridegroom didn't cater enough. This is more than just, you know, Oops, this is social embarrassment to the highest degree. He is going to ruin his reputation if the guests became aware of it. He invited these guests and he didn't adequately prepare. I think it's striking that Jesus' mother, Mary, is the one that the narrative points out is acting. She comes to Jesus with the problem. On top of that, in verse 5, we see that she might have had some authority at this wedding. I mean, she, she, she can tell the servants what to do, suggesting, I think, that Jesus and Mary might be related to the bridegroom in, in some way, even though we don't know for sure who he is. But with social embarrassment and ridicule imminent, what does Mary do? She says these words to Jesus. And so we're left wondering, what is Jesus going to do? Verse 4, he responds, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. This can seem like quite a baffling response, especially to one's own mother. It's kind of abrupt, isn't it? I mean, I don't know how you'd feel if, you know, your mother came to you and you go, Woman, why do you talk to me? I mean, it, it seems very strange, doesn't it? It is a kind of rebuke, although... It's worth saying that the English connotation of saying woman and the way we would think about that in the 21st century, if I referred to you know, any female woman, why do you involve me? It, it doesn't quite come out that way in the original language. It is a kind of rebuke. Why are you coming to me with this problem? Although, notice, verse 5, it doesn't seem like Mary thought Jesus wasn't going to do something. In fact, she tells the servants in verse 5 to do whatever Jesus tells them, which means she clearly sees Jesus' response as almost a, it is a little bit of a rebuke, but it is also kind of acceptance. Jesus is almost going, you know you shouldn't be asking me to do this, but now I'm involved. Why do you involve me? But why? 
Why shouldn't she have involved Jesus? Well, verse 4 tells us, Jesus says it's because his hour has not yet come. You see, Jesus has taken his mother's present and urgent request to solve the wine issue and elevated it to a topic far greater. Something about his hour, his time. Now, what's going on here? You see, in the Old Testament, the God of Israel made a promise to his people, Israel, about what he was going to do for them one day. We heard it read for us in Isaiah chapter 25, didn't we? Let me read a section of it again from verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. You see, the God of Israel promised Israel that one day there would be a feast Amidst all the, 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 the crises of, of warring nations and, and exile, he says, you have a feast coming for you with the best of meats and the finest of wines. But, but more than food, this feast is going to be accompanied by the death of death itself. Shame removed forever. Life everlasting. Restoration never to be removed. This is what Jesus is referring to. Jesus, the chosen one of God, as we've seen over the last few weeks, the stairway to heaven himself, the Messiah, the chosen one of God, even though he is these things, here in John chapter 2, the time has not come yet for him to fully and finally bring these about. His hour has not come yet. And so he's asked to solve the problem of wine, but elevates it to say something about himself. All those promises, they're actually saying something about me, what he came to do, and how there will be a time for him to do it in the truest sense. And yet, back in John chapter 2, verse 5, again, his mother knows that Jesus is still going to do something. He's not going to leave her and the bridegroom and the family to social disgrace, shame, do whatever he tells you, she tells the servants. In verse 6, there were six stone water jars nearby, used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, according to the Jewish law and customs. Verse 7, we see that the water jars were not full. So Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they were filled to the brim. Now, these details are, are they're full and rich of meaning. I think these six stone water jars can be seen as symbolizing the old Jewish system of, of purity laws, rituals and, and regulations and commands, good in what they point to, but not complete, not full. Not full, that is, until Jesus comes along, who is the fulfillment of the Jewish law. What we see in verses 1 to 7 is this impressively intricate yet concise narrative that's showing us Jesus is the fulfillment, the, the promised, long-awaited Jewish Messiah. All of these things are pointing to him. This being on the seventh day, 
shows us that this is what the whole start of John's gospel has been leading us to see. The significance of wine and the reference to the Jewish stone jars shows us how for thousands of years, God has been orchestrating this tapestry of grace to point to his son. In his dealings with Israel, the law, their prophets, their commands, their promises, Jesus is the real deal. It's all been about him for thousands of years. The real deal was here. The one who brings the fullness of the good things of the Old Testament. You know, Jesus' hour had not yet come, and it would not come until a few years after this incident, his suffering and death and resurrection, where he secured the promises of Isaiah 25 forever. Which now, on this side of the resurrection, here in the 21st century, you and I can experience something of a taste of. We can experience salvation, removal of shame, more than a momentary ceremonial washing, lasting salvation, lasting cleansing, and a fellowship with brothers and sisters from all peoples as we are gathered together as God's family, united in Christ. And yet, even though these promises have been secured now, we don't enjoy them fully yet. We look forward to the final fulfillment of these promises, and that is where history is headed. It's all about Jesus. You know, there's a temptation to anxiety when we contemplate how history will remember us. Will we have been on the right side of history? Will we be remembered fondly? Will we be remembered at all? And these anxieties can overwhelm us, dominating our thoughts and actions such that we feel the need to constantly reinvent ourselves, change our jobs if we're not making an impact in the first nine months, changing our beliefs if, if the social isolation and the loss of status is just too much changing our habits and our priorities, sacrificing relationships if it means we can just get a bit further in our field. And ending up with a lot of guilt and shame. Not to mention changing friend groups if this group just isn't cutting it. There's always the block button. Indeed, our vision of the future orients how we live in the now. You see, our vision of the future orients how we live, and for many of us, anxieties about the future, questions about where we're headed, uncertainties about what lies ahead, they, 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 they control the choices we make. And they have an impact on how we live. What God invites you to do today, this evening, is to see how the course of history has been all about Jesus, and how Jesus is the one who will one day meaningfully, lastingly, forever usher in God's amazing promises. Life forever. Eternal restoration. History finds its focus and end goal in Jesus. And we are invited to see that future and orient our lives now in the present. You know, surely the question, where is my life going, needs to take a different tone when we see where all of history is going and where the world is going. We are invited to see our lives as but a footnote to the grand story that God is telling and to know that even if we feel like we've got ups and downs, highs and lows, whatever may come with Jesus, we are on the right side of history.
we will be partakers of where it is going. We won't miss out. Well, the story continues, doesn't it? As we see Jesus continue to address the possible social catastrophe here at the wedding. So come with me now to verses 7 to 10. And here we're going to see where the fullness of life is found. In verse 7, having asked the servants to to fill the jars to the brim, verse 8, he then tells them to to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, the the head servant, the one who's commanding all the other servants. The master of the banquet may have been sweating himself. I mean, just think about it, right? Not only did the bridegroom fail in his duty to provide enough food and drink, or drink at least, but the master of the banquet didn't check beforehand. And so... I mean, usually when it comes to these things, it's the, it's, it's the cashiers, it's the servers who get, who get the brunt and the blame, isn't it? Surely the master of the banquet is going, I'm going to get blamed first before the bridegroom does, and then he'll get blamed later, but what am I going to do? Well, when the servants bring this liquid to him, verse 9, he, he tastes it. And somewhere between the servants filling the jars to the brim and drawing it out and it touching his lips, it is transformed from water into wine. And not just any wine, the most magnificent, exquisite, class of its own wine that this, this master has ever tasted. He's in the service industry. He drinks wine regularly, but this he has never tasted before. His eyes widen. And read with me from the end of verse 9. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Three things we see here. Firstly, do you notice how we never hear in the narrative from the bridegroom? We, we, We don't get any lines from the bridegroom. And yet, this man who has failed in his duty to provide wine, Jesus has adopted his role. Jesus has provided wine. Jesus, well, in a very real sense, he has shown himself to be the better bridegroom. You see, John's gospel goes on to call Jesus the bridegroom several more times, but focusing here, Jesus is the greater bridegroom of a greater marriage still to come. The one that all human marriages are to be but a a shadow of. The greatest marriage between Christ and the church that will come when he returns. You see, what Jesus does in this first sign, turning water into wine at this wedding party, Revealing his glory, he affirms the goodness of human marriage. And yet, he points us to the spiritual marriage that human marriages are but a shadow of. Can't compare with, and not the main game. Human marriages are not the main game. But you see, the spiritual one, still to come, that's the one that all of God's people, whether humanly married or single right now, will partake in in the future. Jesus is the greater bridegroom, and he won't fail to provide enough. Which means we can enjoy marriage or singleness without making them ultimate, and can grieve broken or lost relationships without losing hope. 
Now, much more could be said about this topic, but just trying to keep it in John chapter 2. Here's what we see. Fullness of life isn't found primarily in a human marriage, but in turning our gaze to the greater marriage still to come. Secondly, notice how Jesus inverts the order here. Notice how we've been told that normally the best wine is brought out and then the cheaper wine. But at this wedding in Cana, the best wine is brought out last. This shows us something about what life will be like if we follow Jesus. You see, Jesus' sign points us to this. Whether you are old or young, healthy or sick, going well or going poorly, the best is yet to come. Because there is going to be a day when there will be no more sickness, no more tears, no more death, no more suffering, no more shame forever. If you are with Jesus, your best life is still to come when Christ returns and ushers in the new creation. The God who rested on the seventh day is the same God who in Jesus promises us an eternal rest filled with the best meat and the finest wine. Rest with Jesus in new creation. That's awesome, isn't it? It's really, really awesome. And it's where you can be sure of your life going. If you're with Jesus. And being sure of this means, no, have that clear vision of the future, orienting how you live now. It means you can live a a rich and full life right now in 2023, free to to speak words of life and truth, no matter what it will do to your status. Free to, to, to be bold in doing acts that are good and just and righteous, even if it puts your safety at risk. Free to sacrifice for others who may not even appreciate you, because you know that your future is secure. Because if you're with Jesus, the best is yet to come. And yet, also know this. If you don't believe in Jesus, then your life now, or maybe a previous time in your life, is as good as it's going to get. You do not have access to these promises. You have no assurance that you have a future with no shame and guilt and death. And suffering. Because these promises are only for those who follow the Messiah who secured them for us, the greater bridegroom. And so please, hear clearly this is for those who trust and follow Jesus, the King. Hear, believe, and follow, for this is where fullness of life is found. Thirdly and finally, back in verse 9, notice how the master of the banquet didn't know where the wine had come from. And yet, in verse 9, the servants knew. The servants who heard Jesus listened and and followed. They were the ones who who most immediately saw the sign. Jesus' power turning water into wine. Jesus' compassion saving this bridegroom and, and presumably his family from this social embarrassment 
Jesus' kindness acting even though he didn't need to yet. His hour had not yet come. The servants knew. Imagine what they said to their family or their friends on their way home that night. And how, they, how their lives changed in light of it. Now, the truth is we don't know. The narrative never tells us. But we do know that the disciples heard about it. And they believed. And we do know that this same Jesus invites us to know him and believe. To know who he is and what he has done. And to, to live our lives accordingly. To follow this glorious Jesus who reveals where history is headed. And where the fullness of life is found. Brothers and sisters, we can know the final destination, though we may not know what obstacles lie on the path. We can live boldly now because we know the one who holds history in his hands. And we can live faithfully with a confident assurance that the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word and for your glorious Son. We pray that we would follow him, your chosen one. In Christ's name.